The following podcast is a Dear Media production. She's a lifestyle blogger extraordinaire. Fantastic. And he's a serial entrepreneur. A very smart cookie. And now Lauren Everts and Michael Bostick are bringing you along for the ride. Get ready for some major realness. Welcome to the Skinny Confidential, him and her. Aha! You know, the brain tends to protect you, so it will it will wall off areas of memory. It's one of the great things about ketamine is ketamine allows access to memories that you can't recall. I mean, I've had people that barely remember their childhood and they're on ketamine and right after the ketamine, they're they're naming off childhood friends and teachers and events that occurred in, in childhood. Today is an exciting day because Skinny Confidential product has launched. You guys, after years in the making and me obsessing and being a fucking psycho over every detail, it is finally here. And it's amazing. You love it? I do love it. He actually used it this morning. And fun fact, I've used him as a guinea pig because you can run puffy sometimes after a few too many whiskeys. Listen, I can run real puffy. So here's the deal. The brand, you can follow it on Instagram. It's at The Skinny Confidential. And we are here to micromanage your face bloat. Face bloat is a real bitch. I know this because of the jaw surgery I experienced. I'm telling you, I'm a fucking practitioner when it comes to facial swelling. Well, I love the whole ethos behind this because like you said, so many people are out there trying to mask a problem after it's already occurred instead of prevent it. And this works for everybody, men, women, young, old, middle age, anyone that's trying to prevent aging, prevent swelling, limit problems before they happen. This is the thing for you. So what it is, is it's the hot mess ice roller. Every little detail, like I said, was designed by me. I worked with a designer to create something out of nothing. So it's this beautiful silicone ice roller. It's pink. It's cheeky. It looks good on your vanity. You're not going to put it in your back drawer collecting cobwebs. The best part is, though, it holds cold. Every single cold roller on the market was not holding cold for me. It was so frustrating. I would take it out of the freezer And two minutes later, it would be back to the normal temperature. So I created one that holds cold for hours. This is so crazy. I literally put my ice roller in the freezer, took it out, used it. And two days later, I picked it up and it was still cold. So it's just a very durable, sturdy, beautiful tool. Um, It's something that I use in the morning. At night, it drains the lymphatic system. You roll it on your face. You can use it with skincare products. You can use it without. I have to use it before I do my makeup or I'm like a bloated mess. And then with that, I also created an oil. It doesn't have any scent. I noticed that the oils that I was using during quarantine would cause dermatitis all over my face. So I wanted to create an oil without a synthetic fragrance. I just wanted it very natural. So I used pomegranate oil, which is an oil I've been using since high school. I haven't found one that was really, really great and branded. So I saw a gap in the market. With that, I also added some raspberry seed oil and blueberry seed oil. And then lastly, I made sure it had menthol in it. So this is going to give you that cooling effect that soothes inflamed skin. Everything that I created is for people who run puffy, if you have wine face, if you're hungover, if your eyes are swollen, whether I went to Utah, I was so swollen, I used this ice roller, it helped so much. 
Everything is on the site, Shop Skinny Confidential. I hope you guys love it. I will do a podcast to break it down more because I really want to show you guys the journey of how this came about. But in the meantime, go check it out, stock it. Couldn't be more excited. Congratulations, Lauren. Thank you, Michael Bostick. Introduce our guest, please. Okay, today I'm very excited. We have Dr. Daniel Stickler on the show, and Lauren has been touching on psychedelics and the effects on the brain and unlocking human potential for so long. And I said, Lauren, if you're going to do that and you're going to continue to talk about it in our experiences over and over to the audience who's maybe a little skeptical and maybe a little confused, wants to hear some medical background on this stuff, well... Now we got that person for you, Dr. Daniel Stickler. He is the co-founder and chief medical officer of the Aperian Center for Human Potential and chief science officer for Aperian Academy. He is the pioneer behind systems-based precision, performance medicine, and new paradigm that redefines medicine from the old symptoms-based disease model to one of the limitless peak performance in all aspects of life. He is an expert on this subject. He knows so much about psychedelics, about plant-based medicine, about pretty much all this stuff. And... It was so important that we brought him on the show because if we're going to be opening up subjects on this podcast for you, the listeners, I want to make sure that we also have medical reference or an experts. And that's really, you know, Lauren and I are just everyday people like everyone else. But now we have an actual expert to answer our questions, hopefully answer some of yours. With that, Dr. Daniel Stickler, welcome to the Skinny Confidential, him and her show. This is the Skinny Confidential, him and her. So when I was in high school and I tried cocaine, the come down is horrible. Mm-hmm. MDMA for me was horrible. Maybe it was not good MDMA. Is that something to do with my makeup? Am I do <laughs> like, is cocaine something that you stay away from? Cocaine is definitely something to stay away from. One of the major downsides of cocaine, and I did, the, I was a, a neuroscience major in undergraduate and we actually researched addiction to cocaine. And there's a specific area in the brain that just, can turn on either the first time you do it or after a hundred times. I don't like it at all. For addiction. Ugh. I mean, you just don't want to mess with that. And I mean, it's not worth it. It's a it's a five minute, ten minute high that you get and then you just come down and you want to do more to to keep it going. Yeah, that was my I, I've actually I've never done it personally and I don't pass any judgments, but I never got it. I never got this thing. Like if I drink, I like to catch a buzz and it carries you through the night and you can have a good time. Or if you're doing psychedelics, you know, it'll last a little bit longer and you can have fun. But I never got this thing where you're chasing this thing every five, ten minutes and running to the bathroom yeah. over and over and over. It just felt like what's the point of that? Right. From and like a practical standpoint. We have all of our clients wear wearable monitors and I, I track them all the time. So I, I look at what happens to their stress, their sleep, their resting heart rates and their heart rate variability. And we'll go through their numbers and we'll see at times when they've done something. Like I've had a lot of people that said they smoked, smoked weed to relax and yet their stress scores just shot off the chart when they did it, but they had the perception that it was relaxing them and it was actually stressing them. Alcohol is the same way. It just shoots it off the chart. And it's strange because I've seen like with some of the psychedelics, like clients that have used LSD or have used psilocybin, I've actually seen their stress scores come down from it. It's a strange phenomenon I didn't expect to see, but from what they've been telling me is their timing and I look at their scores seems to be pretty accurate. I'm not recommending my experience to anyone, but I had the worst postpartum depression. It was absolutely horrible. And I did uh, microdosed mushrooms three times in a row and it got me 90% over it. Do you see that a lot with a lot of people who come in depressed and then they microdose? I have talked to a lot of clients that have done some self 
medicating with the psilocybin and looking at the research on the psilocybin. I mean, there's pretty good research on single large doses resolving depression, anxiety, even PTSD and addictions. Really good research coming out on addictions. A lot of the research is done on end of life care, the psilocybin in people that are in fear of death and they have anxiety around dying and they do a huge dose of mushrooms, a heroic dose, and they come out of it and they they are good with with passing at that point. I don't know if they see God or what it is, but they have this perception that this isn't the end of things. So let's I, I want to take a couple steps back for the people just tuning in. When when we when we talk about psilocybin, I think and people talk say mushrooms. I think mm-hmm. a lot of people have the image of your face melting off and you seeing <laughs> these crazy visions. And I, when we talk to our parents about it, you know, they come from the previous generation and they they think it's this thing where they're gonna if they take it they're gonna go crazy and be all this danger. And I think a lot of people think that from mm-hmm. a medical per, and scientific perspective, maybe you can help shed some light or like maybe a little bit more clarity on psilocybin and, and the effects it has on the brain and the mind. Well, I mean, all of these, all of these tryptamine compounds, so DMT, psilocybin, ibogaine, they all have an effect on the serotonin receptors in the brain, and they can vary in how they affect it. And even like psilocybin, I mean, there's there's a thing called an entourage effect. So when you get the full mushroom, you get more than just the psilocin and psilocybin you get a full range of other chemicals in there like argensin which is a euphoric compound so they've been there's been a lot of companies isolating the psilocin or the psilocybin and using that but they're finding it's not giving the same effect so the question is you know what is this entourage effect and how many chemicals are involved with it and 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 so when when people are talking to you and consulting you about this and and they and they're hesitant or they're nervous. How do you kind of walk them through the process? Well, I have to I have to kind of step back and say this this is something I do not recommend you do. But if you have chosen to do that, this is probably the way you should go about it if you're going to. And that's that first do no harm philosophy for for medicine. You're if you don't give them some direction you can do harm with them. So they're going to do it one way or the other. So you can give them a little bit of guidance in that or direct them to a site where they can find something to give them the information that they need. It's too bad that physicians aren't aren't able to talk about it more because it's, I mean, I look at the clients that I have and a large number of them are doing psychedelics. And they're doing them, some of them are doing them the right way, and some of them are really playing with fire with it. So what's an, what's an example of playing with fire? You know, the people that go out and try to get like MDMA, they're going to get molly or ecstasy. And typically, MDMA, pure MDMA is not a party drug. It's not something you want to take and go out and party. And so what they do is they, they kind of mix it with a little bit of methamphetamine typically. So when you're getting molly or ecstasy, you're usually getting something mixed with methamphetamine. And usually, I don't think a lot of people know that. Yeah, they don't. And it's usually if you're getting it in a capsule in a, or in a tablet form, you're probably going to get adul- adulterated MDMA. Which is why when I took it, I felt so bad, probably, because it's probably laced with something. Well, it can and can't. I mean, typically, when you take it, you're going to get an amphetamine-like initial response from it. But 
you're not going to have this super hyped up activity level ready to ready to go dance. I mean, you just want to lay down in a cuddle puddle and just like lounge with people and relax. So it's when they put the other stuff in there that helps people to do that. And that's where the danger comes because they'll overheat because their body temperature goes up, their heart rate goes up, and then they get out on a hot dance floor and dance and they can have heat strokes. Where do you think all this stuff got such a bad name? Because it's obviously having a, a massive resurgence. More and more people are talking about people like yourself are studying it. There's a lot of smart minds in the space now, which I think is an incredible thing. But where along the way did plant medicine and psychedelics kind of go astray and get such a, a bad rap? I look back at when I was a child in the after-school specials about the, the how bad drugs were and everything, the LSD and pot and all of this. I mean, it was just a massive campaign of it. A lot of these were freely available until the government said, oh, people are partying with them and they, they put them on a Schedule 1. And the problem with putting them on a Schedule 1 is you can't even do research with them. Hold up. I am about to tell you about the best vitamins on the planet, Ritual. So we've talked a lot about this before on the podcast, but a woman's journey from pregnancy to postpartum can be challenging. I know this because I had a very easy pregnancy, a very easy labor, but a horrific postpartum. And I feel like as mothers, we're pulled in so many different directions it's just crazy. So that's why Ritual saw a gap in the market to make Ritual's newest member a central prenatal. And this is for the arrival of a mother's new nutrients needs postpartum. I think this is absolutely powerful and amazing because I feel like we're so focused on pregnancy and prenatals, but we're not focused on the postpartum aspect. And you're so depleted after you give birth. And it is so important to make sure that you're feeding your body the right nutrients after you have the baby. Obviously, Essential Postnatal is vegan-friendly, non-GMO, sugar-free, free of major allergens, and formulated without artificial colors or preservatives. Obviously, Essential Prenatal is vegan-friendly, non-GMO, sugar-free, free of major allergens, and formulated without artificial colors or preservatives. I feel like we deserve to know what we're putting in our bodies and why, which is why I love Ritual. If you go to their site, it's so streamlined. It's all backed by a visible supply chain so you can know what nutrients your multivitamin is made of and where it comes from. In this day and age, I try to be my own guru and do my own research, and Ritual makes it very, very easy. I took these after giving birth, and I do think that they helped me get over the postpartum and anxiety and depression. I think feeding my body with the right nutrients helped me recover quicker. So you're going to go to ritual.com slash skinny. A mother doesn't always put her needs first, but Ritual does. That's why they're offering all Skinny Confidential, him and her listeners, 10% off during your first three months. Like I said, you're going to visit ritual.com slash skinny to start essential postnatal today. I'm telling you, if you just had a baby or you're about to have a baby, this is your vitamin. Nobody can even study it when it's scheduled. Well, you can. You can apply for a research license to use them in research. Really hard to get, though. Like in 1984, the DEA took MDMA and put it on a Schedule 1. And prior to 84, it was freely available just for anybody. But they put it on a Schedule 1 because it was hitting the party scene. But up until that time, there had been therapists that had used it in over 500,000 therapy sessions. And this wasn't like it was just a, you know, a random test. It had been used 500,000 times in therapy. And researchers and therapists filed a suit, and the FDA allowed the suit to go forward. 
And the judge sided with the therapists and the researchers and said, this shouldn't be a Schedule One." And the FDA chose to ignore it. Huh. There was another appeal, same thing, different judge, same outcome. FDA chose to ignore it. So now it goes into Schedule One, which we know that when a drug gets put on Schedule One, it does nothing for reducing the recreational use of it. It just doesn't happen. So why would you put it on a Schedule One? Put it on like a, a Schedule uh, Two or a Schedule Three where it can be prescribed for the purposes that it works for. I mean, it's MDMA is truly a love drug and it works really well. It's just right now it's illegal. But the research is so strong right now. I mean, MAPS has done this, this they're in phase three trial and the preliminary results are going to blow people away. Well, yeah, I mean, you, we've read, a, this is why we wanted to have someone like you on the show because we've talked about it just from our experience. And we said, you know, before we really go in depth on this and present it to this size of an audience, we really need to have somebody that can speak as you do edu- from an educated standpoint on what's going on here. Because I, I do agree, I think MAPS is going to, the, the stuff they're going to come out with is going to be incredible. It's going to be groundbreaking. And what does MAPS stand for, just if anyone doesn't know? Multidisciplinary, multidisciplinary applied psychedelics, I believe. I can't remember exactly. I just know okay. it as MAPS. Uh, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's what I know it as. Okay. Uh, I've been to se- several of their events and never paid attention to the full. So what were the, when, when they were, when these therapists were administrating it to these half a billion studies, what, what, what were they primarily treating? They were doing mostly couples therapy. And one of the interesting things about MDMA, and they say it's a love drug, and there's a really good book by Earp called Love Drugs. He and another bioethicist from King's College did an entire book on this. It was released a couple of years ago. They're really pro having this drug available for people to use in the right context. And people will say, well, you're going to fall in love with somebody just by taking a drug. Well, it doesn't work that way. It, it, it enhances what's already there. It doesn't create something that's already there. So a lot of couples therapists would say they could tell if a couple was going to stay together or not when they did MDMA with them because they would give them the MDMA and you would either express the love of the other person or you express a generalized love for everything because you can take MDMA, go out in the woods and you're in love with trees and birds and, and everything like that and you feel it right here. And when couples would come to couples therapy... And one of the one of the couple would be like really adoring of the other person, but the other person was feeling love, but they weren't directing it at the partner. They knew that wasn't going to work out. It was only when the two partners actually felt that together. And specifically, what's the context that the, you would use it in? So they would just come to therapy like regular couples therapy, and they would distribute the MDNA, and they would sit sit in and talk together. From what I understand, they would usually do an individual session. Uh, so individually, one with one of them on the MDMA first to talk about things. Hopefully, one of them doesn't try to fuck the therapist. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but remember, it only occurs if the love is already present. Okay. So you do feel an attraction, though, for the other person. But just it's not like that kind of attraction. It's just like you you want to hold somebody, but it's not a sexual type of thing from what I understand. So it's it's a really amazing drug when used in the right context. And and that's the key thing. And and that's with all of these, with psilocybin, with LSD, and they have great therapeutic potential. Even DMT and ayahuasca, ibogaine, they have great potential if used in the right way. But a lot of this is going on in the party scene and people 
are using the excuse of, oh yeah, I'm, I'm really working on my enlightenment and all this, but they're really just, they're doing drugs. Could you walk us through those drugs that you just named using them in the right way? Like for instance, psychedelics, what's a way that you think as a doctor is really productive? Could you tell us DMT, how is that productive? LSD, what are the actual like circumstances where it is used in a way that actually helps you? So the most researched right now are probably the MDMA and the psilocybin. And MDMA is great for PTSD treatments. Uh, everybody has trauma. I mean, I used to think that there were people that, like myself, I didn't have trauma, but I did. And everybody has some form of trauma that they kind of suppress or they've never really worked through. And MDMA gives that ability to, to voice that. MDMA is really cool. MDMA allows you to speak from the heart and receive from the heart. So couples that will be talking about disagreements, the one person will say, it really hurt me when you did this. And the other person's like, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't even realize it. It's like drops the guard down. The ego's gone. The ego. Yeah. The ego's gone. You're just in pure love at that point and And you want to hear the person and, and you want them to hear you. Where can I sign up with Michael? <laughs> I have a list of things that I want to go through in my notes app. <laughs> no, I mean, listen, the conversations that we've had when we partake have been some of the most groundbreaking conversations as a couple that it's bypassed, I think, what would have taken years of therapy, honestly, because, you know, it's not this tit for tat. You did this. Well, I, well, you did that thing. It's really like, oh, you, you start to understand the person. But I, I want to talk a little bit more about trauma because before speaking to people like yourself and having experience of our own, I used to think the same thing, like, oh, maybe I don't have any trauma. Maybe I'm just, but what I've learned is that the brain does a really good job of burying trauma and and making you unaware of trauma on a conscious level. Like maybe subconsciously it's there and it's affecting you in other ways, but the brain does such a good job of trying to guard you from something that maybe happened in your past that maybe you don't even remember. And, mm -hmm. and I feel like for some reason, these things open up um, those pathways to be able to address that trauma. And in, in the beginning, my fear was, okay, well, if there's something that I've suppressed this long, maybe it's good that it's suppressed. But what I learned is it's probably affecting me in other ways. And with this stuff, what I found out is it helps you kind of address that stuff and move forward in a productive way. And what I'm asking you, and I know that was long-winded, is why is that? You know, the brain tends to protect you. So it will... It will wall off areas of memory. It's one of the great things about ketamine is ketamine allows access to memories that you can't recall. I mean, I've had people that barely remember their childhood and they're on ketamine. And right after the ketamine, they're, they're naming off childhood friends and teachers and events that occurred in, in childhood. It's just that, you know, our brain likes to partition things. And, and trauma is, is a strange event when when thing when something happens in a trauma whether it be a psychological trauma or a physical trauma there's a coding so this goes to the hippocampus and the hippocampus codes it as a memory and an emotion associated with that and a lot of PTSD they never file it away as a memory it's constantly a scenario that can come up at any time with the emotion with it so they never have it, the event classified as a memory itself. And a lot of that has to do with their cortisol response, their cortisol receptors, uh, how they respond to that. 
So after a trauma, somebody who's more prone to PTSD, they're going to not file it as memory. They'll file the emotion of it. And then when events occur that initiate some kind of sequence again, it'll take them back into that. I'm getting around your question here, but the I have worked with some people that had identified some childhood experiences. Like there was this guy that he had said that he used to love to write and some teacher chastised him in front of a bunch of people when he was in sixth grade. And he remembered that, but he didn't associate it with anything traumatic for himself. But he hadn't written since that time. He, he used to write just amazing stories. And after he kind of realized that that was a trauma that he had internalized and he worked through it, he was able to, to kind of get himself back on track and start writing again. And this was 40 years later. For some reason, the word ketamine scares me. <laughs> and I don't know if I'm just conditioned for that word to be scary, but it's mm-hmm. it's it's such a like powerful word. For some reason, I think horse tranquilizer. It is. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Okay, so, so can people come in and really use it in a way that's productive? And if so, how? Yeah, there's a, there's a couple of ways it's being used. So ketamine has been used in, in, in human anesthesia as well for, for decades and it's cheap anesthesia. So third world countries use a lot of ketamine because it's, it's like two or $3 to give somebody full sedation with it. Uh, and that's with an intravenous or an intramuscular dose. There's some clinics that are doing intravenous, some clinics that do intramuscular, and then typically they'll prescribe an intranasal as a maintenance dose to to kind of get people through or just use the intranasal from the get-go. But it, what we've seen is that people do best when they go on go on a full kind of journey dose of ketamine and they're able to sit and, and integrate afterwards. So a lot of these clinics, I've talked to people that have gone to, to some of these clinics and they go into a sterile room, they get their IV therapy, and then the person at the end of it goes, so what did you think? And it's not an integration. So they're not able to integrate what they actually just went through. And, and it can be really confusing because ketamine, ketamine alters your top-down versus bottom-up process processing. So bottom up is the subconscious. It's these thoughts that are crazy thoughts that are just, oh, that's impossible. And the top down will filter those and they'll say, nope, we're not, we're not going to let you think that thought. We're not going to let you think that thought. And the lateral prefrontal cortex of the brain is kind of that gateway. Ketamine turns that off and all of a sudden you have bottom up processing. So this subconscious just comes into full bloom. And that's why Everybody has the magical thinking and the dissociation, so they feel like they're out of their body. And at higher doses, you get actually ego dissolution and, and you realize unity consciousness or you experience God. And those can be profound if they're integrated in the right way. They can be scary if they're integrated in the wrong way or interpreted in the wrong way. So it's good to have somebody that can sit there and and I truly feel like it, when, when we do a ketamine therapy in the office, we will sit and, and we have a room that is, it's, it's kind of a comfortable, non-sterile looking room. It doesn't look like a clinic. And we, we do intramuscular because having the IV there, a lot of people will move on ketamine. And 
they're you want them to you want to let them move and just kind of keep an eye on them so they don't hurt themselves but it, there's a lot of movement like a, people will do hand mudras that have no idea what a hand mudra is and they're what i have no idea what the, it, it's just that they'll be oh yeah yeah, yeah. moving their hands and and making beautiful movements with it and they have no idea i don't know why it occurs but it's a common theme in ketamine Wait, we need to talk about Juneshine Hard Kombucha. This is the most insanely delicious alcohol. That's right. Juneshine has a hard kombucha. It's made with real organic ingredients. And they're so cute. They look adorable on your Instagram stories and feed. But they also taste so good. I am a huge kombucha fan in general, but this one is super low in sugar. It's easy on the gut. It's gluten-free, and it's full of probiotics. They call it the champagne of kombucha. They use this green tea and honey as opposed to a lot of brands that use black tea and sugar, and it gives it this very smooth, less acidic taste. You could enjoy it in the beautiful can. You could put it in a big wine goblet. Sometimes I like to put ice in it and stuff basil in it and make it a whole experience. You can just do you. Something to mention too, it doesn't leave you with that bloated belly like a lot of sparkling drinks do. It's not that I'm too full after drinking feeling. It gives you like a lighter, brighter, softer buzz. It's perfect for the girl on the go that has to wake up at 6 a.m. or 7 a.m. like I do every morning. And just some facts about Juneshine. They committed to becoming a 100% carbon neutral brand. They also donate 1% of their sales to environmental nonprofits. I'm so into this brand. They're now delivering nationwide to your doorstep. You can get alcohol delivered to your doorstep. I love 2021. We've worked out an exclusive deal for all Skinny Confidential, him and her podcast listeners, as always. You get to receive 20% off plus free shipping on the best-selling variety pack. This is such a great way to try all their delicious flavors at once. You're going to go to juneshine.com slash skinny or use code skinny at checkout to claim this deal. That's J-U-N-E-S-H-I-N-E dot com slash skinny. And this discount is only valid for their variety pack. You should know Juneshine can also be found in over 10,000 stores across the country, including Whole Foods, Safeway, Kroger, and Publix. Cheers. Tell us your favorite story of a patient that came in maybe having so much anxiety or depression or trauma and tell us what the ketamine did for them. So we had a guy that he was a business executive here in the States, but he had come from Colombia and he had grown up in a very traumatic childhood. He had been overweight as a child. He had a fear of water as a child and that progressed through his life and he never wore shorts or short sleeve shirts, even though he was like 20% body fat. I mean, he had gotten very fit and he truly had this, such a low self-esteem for himself. And he went through a ketamine therapy with us and he literally swam around the room on the carpet, swimming. And he said he was in quicksand and he was drowning. And when he came out, he said he had died. And it truly was a part of him had died. And it was that part that was telling him he wasn't worthy of anything. And over the next couple of weeks, he came in and he was wearing short sleeves. He was so proud of himself for wearing a short sleeve shirt. 
And then he wore shorts and then he went to the pool with his kids. And so his life changed so dramatically and he was so elated by what he had discovered with that. And it was just one one session. So in your practice, the psychedelics are not legal yet. I'm going to say yet because I think they're going to be. Mm -hmm. Is DMT legal? No. No. So the only thing that the practice can do is ketamine. Correct. Okay. For now. For now. Uh, yeah, we're hoping that the the MDMA comes online soon in the psilocybin because those those have the greatest therapeutic potential that we've seen. If you could visually tell us a graph of which each one is for, that'd be very helpful. For instance, if you could say psychedelics is really great for depression and anxiety and this one's good for trauma, is it easy to put them in boxes like that? It, it isn't from a generalized category. Now, okay. this is one of the things. So we have a genetics company and we do genetic polymorphisms to identify. And a lot of people are using this for personalized medicine so they can identify who's going to respond best to certain things. And we've been approached by three different psychedelic companies that are looking for the medical side of psychedelics. They're waiting for it to happen, but they're wanting to develop uh, genetic protocols where they can look at and get probabilities of who's going to respond best to what, because some people will respond really, really well to MDMA and other people will go into full anxiety and, and fear with MDMA. Same thing with LSD. I mean, you can go into full psychotic break versus the person that just has this beautiful experience with it. And psilocybin is, is the one that's probably the most attractive from the identifying genetic response to it because it's so varied with each person. You just it can't typically predict a good trip versus a bad one. And it's important because psilocybin has probably one of the greatest potentials of all of the all of the psychedelics that are coming on board right now. Now, like for anxiety, PTSD, depression, MDMA can work depending on the cause. And so it depends on where this comes from. Psilocybin works really well for depression, anxiety, and the LSD has been, they've been doing some research on the depression and anxiety with that one as well. So they hit all these different areas, but it depends on what the person's kind of context is. So you, you would choose, if these were all available, you would choose one specifically for that person based on their history and, and what you suspect that they would be, what would be underlying what's going on. Ketamine is, is, is great because it brings up the memories and you can, you can identify what's going on. And that's why it's so effective in, in PTSD, anxiety, depression. And I mean, depression right now is huge. I mean, there is a tsunami of psychiatric illness right now. Oh yeah. I mean, especially after the year we just had. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. As you were talking, I was thinking, you know, from a scientific medical standpoint, if you were to, you know, this stuff is becoming more readily available. People are getting their hands on it. If you were to talk to somebody and coach them through like, hey, you do it this way, it's going to be a bad time. It's going to be a bad trip. Like what are some of the things these people should look out for to avoid having what in quotations, a bad trip? Well, one of the things you should avoid the, you should avoid the synthetics if you're not 100% sure of the of the source and the that it's unadulterated. So like MDMA, ketamine and um, and LSD, those are your your synthetics and those, what are some of the things that can happen if you know get a you know, bad batch or whatever? Yeah, they can just get adulterated with people will typically lace them with other chemicals and that's the scary part. What's scary right now is I mean and I don't know if this 
if this plays into these type of substances, but fentanyl is is a is a scary substance right now that I think is getting mixed in a lot of stuff. And I and I don't think people realize how dangerous that can be, especially if you don't realize you're you're taking it. Yeah. I mean, I don't I mean we use fentanyl in surgery. I was a surgeon for for 10 years and I can't I can't imagine why somebody would want to do fentanyl. Can you give us your background? Tell us how you got into this. I would love to hear more. So when I went into medical school, I was disenchanted with the the whole disease model and pharmacology. And I loved working with my hands. So Surgery gave me a way to do something where I could, somebody would come in, their quality of life would drop due to something surgically related, and I would intervene and bring them back up to their baseline. And the rest of medicine to me was a stepwise postponement of death. So somebody comes in, they have an incident, you stabilize them, they stabilize here, they drop down again, you stabilize here until they die. And I just didn't like that. I mean, you know, I thought medicine should be something that should help optimize people make them resilient, anti-fragile and, and build them up. So I went into surgery and I did that for, for 10 years, but then I discovered age management medicine back in 2005 and started doing that because I suddenly saw there was medicine for healthy people too, that they could go to the doctor and actually get results. I mean, when I went to the, I went to the doctor, my doctor, who was a classmate of mine, and he said, why are you here? And I said, I'm here for just a general checkup. And he said, no, really, why are you here? I said, yeah, just a general checkup. He goes, no, something's wrong, right? And I said, no, nothing's wrong. I mean, it's like you have to be sick to go to the doctor. It wasn't something you could go and just get checked up and get advice. It just didn't happen. And I started doing the age management, which was opening that up. And then uh, my wife joined me in the practice and she's, she's, she's a colonel in the Air Force. She's had 30 years in the Air Force and she worked with human performance in the Air Force. So we were like the perfect couple for this. And she started working with stress response and, and brain activity. So on all of our clients, before we would do even ketamine, we actually map their brain. We actually look to see if there's any potential negative effects that can occur. So Wow. So before you even do it, you look at the brain. Right. And we also work with their, with their breath work. So we do breath mechanics and breath structure. We make sure that they get their breathing to the point where they're controlling stress state. And once they've achieved that, then we'll talk to them about potentially doing the, the ketamine if they need it. But we make sure we really just kind of map it out and understand that we know their brain is receptive to this and not going to, to crash from it. But then, then recently we added another area. So it was kind of like we started off with body and then went to mind. And now we're, we've integrated the spirit piece where we work with people's purpose, with relationships, with love and, and how they go about their life because it, we, it turned out we were doing a lot of work with people on those. I mean, their, their whole issues that were holding them back had something to do with psychosocial Yeah, so you, you kind of address the, the, the person as a whole. Mm -hmm. So let's say Michael and I were to come into your practice. Walk us through what everything would look like. Like what's from when we walk in the door to when we leave, how many appointments is it? What does it look like? And let's say our brains are good for ketamine. Okay. So it would start off where we would we would get uh, a large battery of blood work. We would get your genetics and get a full 80-page genetic report on you. And, wh and what do you need the genetics for? Just, I'm, I'm going to have questions as you So go. that we can personalize things for you and we can see. Our, our, the genetics we use are more lifestyle genetics. So we use them to help identify dietary patterns, supplementation patterns, exercise patterns, sleep patterns, and stress patterns that we can see to help guide us. So we're, we're big into data. 
Okay. We're, we're very data driven. We would send you out a first beat device, which would, it's a, like a EKG device that you wear for three days and it measures 300,000 heartbeats and you document everything you do over that three day period. And we can see what happens to your heart rate variability and, and your stress during these. And are you recovering? How's your exercise and their, your recovery from the exercise? Uh, we get cognitive testing. So we have you do a battery of cognitive tests to see what the brain where the brain is functioning. And we do some, some other epigenetic age tests. We do urinary metabolites, okay? And then once those are done, then we bring you into the clinic for your appointment. And it's a, usually it's a two-day intake. And so the first day, you will spend generally two to three hours one-on-one -on -one with me or one of our other clinicians. And then you'll go through the EEG brain, brainwave uh, mapping, you'll go through what we call psychophysiologic stress profile. And that's where we hook you up to a machine looks like a lie detector and we measure skin conductance, skin temperature, respirations in the chest and belly, muscle tension, expired CO2 levels. And we see how you respond to different stressors and we can identify things that persist. So do you get back to baseline after this stressor is removed or are these other parameters going up? We do neuromuscular mapping of the body to see that all the neuromuscular movements are intact. We look at and we do a posture scan. We do mobility assessments. I think that's it for the two days. And then at the end of the two days, we, I sit down with you and give you a preliminary plan. But then what happens is your primary clinician goes to the whiteboard. So we do whiteboards twice a week. And we usually have eight to 10 of our, our clinical staff there. And we'll, what we'll do is I'll take a client and I'll present everything. Their labs, their genetics, uh, their lifestyle, their quality of life inventories and and all of that and then we will come up with okay these are what we think is going on and, and are there common findings when, when when you do that whiteboard or is it it's different everybody's for every, different every, every yeah different. okay Let me tell you about Ocean Salmon. This is created for those who longed for their perfect protein match. You guys, this salmon is so good. I'm basically a chef now. I can't eat any other salmon. Here's the great thing about this salmon. Ocean is ocean-raised salmon, and it has more than 1,500 milligrams of omega-3 content, which is double the omega-3 content versus most wild salmon. They have this premium Atlantic salmon that's raised in open nets in the fresh waters of Chile so major. Another thing that's amazing about this brand, I really like did a deep dive with it, is that their growing cycle takes almost three years and they want the salmon to be as perfect as it can be. A fun fact is that the healthiest salmons are carefully selected and transported in clean water. And this is the process I found that keeps the salmon healthy while they are delivered to the processing facilities. If you're going to start with something from their company, I would recommend the one night stand. This item ships fresh. It's never frozen. It's skin on fresh portions. I like the eight ounce portion duo. It's packaged in a skin pack to preserve the freshness and taste, which is why I think Michael is so obsessed with it. He's very, very into fresh fish. You very into this. You talk about this. Nothing's all the time. worse than non-fresh fish. Yeah, nothing's worse. So he's very picky about his salmon. I'm telling you, make my lemon salmon. It is so, so good. I add vegetables on the side, some wild rice. It's absolutely delicious. You could put a dollop of creme fraiche or sour cream. It is major. 
And you can even eat the salmon the next day on a bagel, like a like a lock situation. This salmon is the best. There's no other salmon that should be delivered to your doorstep. Ocean is free of microplastics, growth hormones, and heavy metals, so it's perfect to prepare guilt-free for anyone in the family. Zaza even likes it. Ocean arrives seven days fresher than anything you can find at your local retailer. To get your box of Ocean, visit oceansalmon.com and use code SKINNY for 15% off plus free shipping. That's O-S-H-E-N-S-A-L-M-O-N.com. I'm telling you, use code SKINNY. Ocean raised, ocean loved, salmon as it should be. So then, then we'll decide, okay, what's the best interventions here? You know, are we going to use peptides, medications, supplements, neurotech, breath technology, and, you know, all these things that we have available to us. And we have two performance psychologists on staff that will work with them on mindset stuff and really, really moving forward in a uh, positive way. And then over the, over the course of the year, I have 30-minute calls once a month with each of my clients, video calls. And they're all wearing, we give them wearable monitors like the, the Garmin. I'll just, I'll track what's happening with them. And I'll say, listen, I'm seeing a pattern here with your stress scores. You're tanking on Saturday and Sunday. And it takes you a couple of days to recover from that. So what are you doing on the weekends? And it turns out they're having alcohol on Friday nights and Saturday nights. And it's just draining their system. And they, they're not aware of it. Can you talk about that for a little bit with, you know, I think a lot of people, you know, the weekend warriors who go out and drink and obviously have the Sunday scaries. Chemically, physically, what's going on when you partake in alcohol? I mean, and then listen, we both do. But we all know that feeling of anxiety going into a Monday. There's nothing yeah. worse. What, what's actually going on there? Well, alcohol is a stressor. I mean, and it's not that stressors are bad. I mean, exercise is a massive stressor. It's one of the biggest ones you can experience. Uh, More free radicals are generated from exercise than anything. But it's how quickly you can recover from that stressor and how frequently you're exposed to the stressor. And it's like overtraining. They're, They're not fully recovering by the time they get to their next workout. And so it's actually a negative effect that they'll get. Alcohol is like that too, but alcohol, alcohol, from what we've seen in the data, just prolongs the stress response. They get no sleep because they'll typically drink in the evenings and then they'll sleep where you're supposed to have the highest heart rate variability. So you're getting recovery of the system during that and their heart rate variability tanks for the whole night. So then they wake up the next day and they haven't had that period of recovery that's really beneficial. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's interesting as I've gotten older, I... I don't like to drink in the night as much as I do. I was like, if I'm going to do it, I'd rather do it in the day so I can sleep better at night because I just sleep like shit every time I drink. Yeah, I think if you're going to have alcohol, probably you know a midday drink is probably the safest way to go and just maybe one or two days a week. I see so many people nowadays microdosing shrooms in capsules. Like They'll just take a capsule every single day, five days a week, seven days a week, and work. Are you seeing a lot of that? And would you, I, I don't want to say, would you recommend it? But what are your thoughts on it? I work with a lot of entrepreneurs. I mean, that's, that's entrepreneurs and business executives are our main clientele. And psychedelics are ubiquitous in that community. And there's a lot that will do microdosing. And psilocybin is one of the coolest things when you look at the brain and what happens with the brain. It, what happens? Tell us every detail. The interconnectivity in the brain just goes crazy. So, you know, we have brain areas that routinely communicate with each other, but they're also, but these areas are also blocked off from communicating with other areas of the brain. When you're on psilocybin, it's like you look at interconnectivity on an EEG, 
it is just massive. I mean, I've never seen anything like this. It just goes crazy. Ketamine does the same thing. And you're getting this just incredible connections that are occurring in the brain. That's why people have such great ideas when they're when they're doing microdosing or Steve Jobs used to do LSD on a regular basis just to get ideas that were out of the box. And a lot of entrepreneurs actually do that. They they utilize these in a very productive way in in that microdosing and, and they with microdosing of psilocybin, you don't get actually any psychogenic effect. You you get the benefits of the interconnectivity and neuroplasticity where you can improve learning and memory with it, but uh, it doesn't give you any psychological distortions. Does it do anything negative to the brain? For instance, like I know they're like methamphetamine is like horrible for your brain. Is yeah. that how these things that you're talking about are? Are there any downsides? There was like MDMA. You look at it and they, they talk about neurotoxicity, but most of the neurotoxicity studies were based on, and, and this is because they got scheduled one. They couldn't do the research. Their research were, it was based on. How many years of research do you think we lost during that gap? Oh, we lost. 15, Decades, 15 yeah. years, 20 years of, of research because it didn't really come back into play until 2011, 2012. But the the MDMA research was the big study that showed the neurotoxicity was based on these recreational users. I think it was in Finland. And they were using up to 600 milligrams a week on average. And they were using other drugs on top of it. So it wasn't a well-designed study. And, and that was the best they could do. And they said, oh, well, 20% of them got neurotoxicity or they got these heart valve disorders, which it's very common in drug abusers is heart valve disorders. So you can't really attribute it directly to the MDMA. And when you look at the MAPS research, uh, they're not showing those neurotoxicity effects at all. So, so it sounds like what you're saying, just layman's terms, is the MDMA that they were looking at was the ones that were laced with all the things that you were saying that people were using potentially. It for a I mean, party drug. Yeah, they didn't have they didn't have a controlled mix of the MDMA. They also didn't have any control over what the person was taking in addition to it, and and so that was it was just kind of an observational study. But there were too many variables in there to really make any conclusions from it. If you were to predict the future with all of this. Where do you think this is going to go? Do you think that mushrooms are going to become legal? Do you think DMT is going to become legal? What's yeah, your thoughts? I think mushrooms will follow along the lines of cannabis. MDMA will probably go to only being dispensed within the clinics is my answer. Which may not be a bad thing, actually, for that. Right. Well, it can and can't. I mean, because you're going to get a lot of clinics that pop up like these ketamine clinics that just kind of run people through and, and really don't do the integration work with them. MDMA really requires a lot of therapy intervention when you're using it in a, in a medical context. We asked the audience some questions. They had questions for you. Mm -hmm. One of them was, what is the five health staples according to you? Five health staples. So I'm a complex systems guy, so everything's on the same par, but sleep nutrition, exercise, love, and purpose. Good answer. Um, oh my gosh. In that order? No, they're equally. Just equally, okay. Yeah, across the board. When you use the term, you, you used it earlier, anti-fragile, I know that different people use that term for different things, but what is your definition of anti-fragile as it pertains to our overall health? 
So anti-fragile to me is that there's the robust person who can go into like a COVID experience and they can take a hit, but then they bounce right back and they, they move forward. An anti-fragile person will take the hit, but their system will emerge with a new property that makes them stronger coming out of it. And that's our goal is to create people that are anti-fragile, that when they're faced with adversity from a physical, emotional, whatever it is, that they actually come out stronger than, than they went in. So oh, That's so good. I love that. <laughs> and, and in your practice, I imagine, you know, you're seeing all sorts of people, but are, are people coming you with specific illnesses or issues to try to apply an anti-fragile approach or to try to come out of those? Say I come to you with a specific illness, like how are you helping those people? Well, the first thing we do is we dispense with anything specific. So we don't want to stovepipe anybody because a lot of people come in, oh, I just need to lose weight. Well, it, it, it's not a matter of nutrition and exercise. There's a whole host of things. I mean, they're it's their individual genetics, it's their their sleep patterns, their life purpose, their relationships, all of that has to do with it. So you, what we do is they'll come in and they'll say, you know, I really, I really want to lose weight or I want to resolve my diabetes. But we just immediately get them off of the focus of, of that and focusing on just getting healthy in general, bringing the system into homeostasis, then moving it into optimized and then even enhanced beyond that point where we don't even use diagnostic codes in our clients. So people will come in and say, oh, I'm diabetic. I'm like, no, you're not diabetic. You have insulin resistance that's requiring medication. That's fine, but you're not really diabetic. It's not really a disease. It's a spectrum of insulin resistance that you have. And when they, when they lose that, that label, it makes it so much easier for them to move forward. When we're working with weight loss and they're not focused on weight loss, they lose weight without a problem. So it's, it's a matter of really getting them focused on just becoming a generalized healthy. Have you, have you read James Clear's book, Atomic Habits? It's pretty popular right now. A while he, ago, yeah. Yeah, and he talks about mm-hmm. labels and how they can serve you or not serve you, right? Yeah. He says, like, if you label yourself as, I'm a healthy person who does a fitness activity every day, then that becomes part of your identity right. when you do it. But to your point, the reverse, you say, I'm an unhealthy person then, that constantly needs to lose weight. It actually works against you and, and makes it harder. Right. Yeah, I, I definitely, we use a lot of the, the NLP logic and words have a lot of power with people. And so we're, we're, very, we're very meticulous about what we, what we use when we're talking with clients. What are some micro successes that you see every day? For instance, someone cured this or someone doesn't have anxiety anymore or they got out of postpartum. What are some little things that you see that are benefiting your clients? I don't, we, we have such a progression because they'll resolve something and we'll move on and we'll move on and we'll move on. So it's throughout the year, it's always what's next, what's next. The biggest metric that we have is what we call the quality of life inventory, which looks at their rating of where the importance of like community, love, uh, family, work, money, and they rate themselves where they think they are in that after they've rated how important it is. And it gives them a score. And what we see is every year with our clients, we have huge improvements in their quality of life inventory. And that's the metric that we love to see because that's what's important is the life experience. How, how is someone experiencing life? 
And if we can improve the way that they're experiencing life, whether it be physical, emotional, mental, whatever it is, that's a win for us. You talk about aging backwards. Does that play does that play into that concept? Well, we're working on that. I mean, that's one of my big areas of interest is uh, age rejuvenation. And you look great, by the way. Thank you. I was gonna tell you that before <laughs> when we walked in. You look great. Thank you. Yeah, the you know, it was it was a wake up call for me when I was thirty-nine and I'd been working as a surgeon and my stress level was through the roof. I didn't sleep at night because I was on call every night. I was one of the busiest surgeons in the town I was in. And I would eat pizza every day. I drank a 12-pack of Mountain Dew regular every day. And wow. I exercised. So I wasn't overweight, but I wasn't fit. I wasn't healthy. And I got my telomeres tested. And I was 10 years older than my chronologic age. And I was, it, I was just a wake-up call. And that's when I made plans to get myself out of surgery. Even though I loved it, I was, it was just not healthy. And so I made plans to move on to, into this health optimization practice that, that we do now. And over the years, I've been able to, to really slow that loss of the telomeres down quite a bit. And that motivated me to start looking at anti-aging therapies. And the problem with anti-aging therapies is there's a lot of them that are out there right now, some really effective ones but they don't have longitudinal studies. And so you, we're not going to get this approval for age rejuvenation in any of these for a long time. So we have to look at what we can put together to create a response. And if and, you know, it's fine. If you want to wait for the longitudinal studies, that's fine. You're going to be dead by the time you, you find out whether they work or not. But a lot of our clients are really interested in using sense-making therapies, looking at medicine from a sense-making standpoint rather than from a, oh, this is what the research shows. Because research is, is typically biased in many ways. Um, we have this, this bias codex in our office that has all these different biases that can occur. It's just this big map of them. And so we try to identify biases in, in anything that we see. And, and almost every study has some form of bias with it. I mean, it's why you see in the same week, fish oil is great for you. And then fish oil does nothing for you. Or like meat's good for you, meat's bad for you. Right. right. And, oh, and they can show great P values on their research and say, oh, statistically, this is. Sounds like they do the same thing with drugs. They do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, the drug companies, one of the big things that they like to do is they'll do their own research, but they'll do like 40 studies. And they'll pick like three that they want to publish. They won't. That's so fucked up. Do anything with the other studies. How and do you get away from these from from these biased studies? How like what what can be done? You can just look at them from a sense making standpoint. I mean, that's what we do. But like the general consumer who doesn't have access to, I mean, I guess we all do if we could look into it. But th that doesn't see what you see on a daily basis, and you're getting fed this information. How do mm -hmm. you how do you go about educating yourself and really consuming content and consuming studies that will actually point out the tr the, the truth? Well, you can either do a ton of reading or you can find somebody who actually does that part for you as, and not as an individual, but as a team. That's why we do whiteboarding. I have PAs that I've trained on my team and nurse practitioner, but we sit down and they'll, they'll tell me, no, I don't think that's the right way to go. And I'm like, okay, why? And we just, we work through it. We determine why something's there or somebody will say, hey, I just read this study on this, you know, GLP-1 for weight loss, which is a new peptide that we're using called, the, the brand one we use is called Ozempic, but 
it's pretty amazing with the weight loss effect with this stuff. And it's a, it's a peptide. So it's a pretty safe intervention to use and we're getting great results with it. That was something that somebody brought up one time. They had read the study on it and we were just like, oh, well, let's look into that. So we looked into it and we decided to add it as part of our arsenal. What a cool career. I mean, gosh. Oh, I love it. Yeah, you must mm-hmm. be so, you have, that's purpose. It sounds mm-hmm. like you just like love what you do. I do. <laughs> if someone's working with you, is it over a year? You you mentioned a year. Is it two years? Is it forever? How does it usually work or is it, it different? It varies. I mean, I've had, I've got some clients that have been with me 16, 17 years wow. that just keep going. And so what does that look like if you're with you for 16 years? Are you doing different things all the time? Like, what does it look like? I only work with people that are moving forward. So if they say, I'm good where I am, and I say, okay, you don't need me anymore. You can check in with me occasionally and that's fine, but I'm not going to do the aggressive care. My When I do care with a client, it's it's to get the needle moving and keep it moving. And there's, there's not an end point. I mean, the, the journey is ongoing. So there's always something that we can, we can improve upon. Are you working with, and I'm sure you are, any entrepreneurs that you've seen just flourish with oh, this? Yeah. Yeah. Can, can you give us, obviously you can't say names, but just like an example of someone who's just really taken this and ran with it and they're moving forward. Yeah, well, I mean, I have one social media marketer that's been with me for a long time, but he came to me and he was really leery because he had gone to a bunch of a bunch of other doctors that just did these huge tests, their food allergies, their stool analysis, you know, stuff that really wasn't wasn't relevant. And and he came to me and he said, You're not gonna you're not gonna damage my wallet, are you? And I was like, only with what you're paying me is what you're gonna get. And so I worked with him and in the in the year he came in, he was like, I think he was like 28% body fat. He put on 20 pounds of muscle, lost 30 pounds of body fat and got down to around 9% body fat at a year. And that's great from a physical standpoint. But on top of that, he got his black belt in jujitsu. He just 3X'd his business big time and he was sleeping better. He also had a, a child during that time, another child. So, I mean, he had all this stuff that could have just derailed him and he just got stronger. He was the anti-fragile. He got stronger with each of these things that happened. The business took a hit and then he would come out of it doubling what he had done before. So it was just amazing to see all the aspects of that anti-fragile state being expressed in him. Is this something that you can do as a couple or do you recommend it individually? We We have quite a few couples we work with. It doesn't work well if, one of the people come and they have really great success and they convince the other one to come. Mm. And we typically won't do that. So it's got to be, and I'll, I interview everybody that that is a potential candidate for us. And mindset is a huge piece of it. And if it's like, oh, well, I saw my husband do really well and I thought I might try it. That's not happening. It has to be something that you want for yourself individually. Yes. Wow. That's really mm-hmm. cool. I feel like that interview was full of so much value. If you were to recommend a book, a podcast, or a resource that someone could go seek out that has more information on this, 
what would it be? On which topic? I mean, we talked about so many things. <laughs> yeah. I mean, maybe if, if they want to learn a little bit more about psychedelics, if they want to learn about psychedelics, if they want to learn a little bit more about peptides and anti-aging, all of, like, I guess let's start maybe with psychedelics um, mm-hmm. because that's what we dove into first. Then we can maybe a great book to just give you a historical background. Uh, Brian Moreski, you guys interviewed him yet? Uh, he wrote the Immortality Key. It's talking about the history of psychedelics and religion and creating Christianity. Amazing book. The Love Drugs by Earp, really an amazing thesis on this. And it's just saying, you know, we have all these drugs that we use and we've got this one drug that is a really spectacular drug. I mean, what's better than having a loving relationship in your life, but we'll prescribe SSRIs, which are anti-love drugs all the time and not blink an eye with it. Huh. That's so interesting. Like antidepressants, you mean, right? Yep. That makes a lot of sense what you're saying. This was so interesting. I love what you do. This is so cool. Where can everyone find you? Pimp yourself out. Your book, Pimp everything. Pimp me out. Yeah. So it would be to go to our website, appearon, A-P-E-I-R-O-N-Z-O-H.com. So appearonzoy.com. It means limitless life. Cool. Instagram? Uh at appear on me. So A-P-E-I-R-O-N-M-E. Cool. We're going to link everything out. We'll help you out. We're going to link everything out. Thank you so much for coming on. Come back anytime. I feel like we could have asked you a hundred more questions. <laughs> it was no, a pleasure. I, I love it. I think this was a good entry point into this subject because I think, listen, like there's so many, there's so much misconception around it. And especially if you're just hearing the word drugs and psychedelics, then all of a sudden you're, you have your own judgments on that without actually understanding the world that is all these things. And listen, I think that's going to change. Obviously, MAPS is doing a lot of, of research and there's a lot of great stuff coming out. Just like anything else, people need to get informed. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Thank you. Wait, don't go. I have a fun giveaway. This is one of the most fun giveaways. I am giving away an Ice Queen facial oil to one of you. All you have to do is tag a friend on my latest Instagram at Lauren Bostick. Tell them to listen to the Skinny Confidential him and her podcast. We want to grow the community. Super easy. I hope you love this episode and we will see you on Monday. Cheers. <laughs>